I started singing at the bedside of patients about 10 years ago. And I mean, the response is, it's hard to describe. You kind of have to see it when you walk into someone's space, when they're going through some of the hardest times of their life and you look into their eyes and you say, what would feel good for you to hear today? What music would you like to hear today? Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Good Health Cafe, the place to learn more about how to navigate the healthcare system and understand your health in plain language. I'm your host, Nikita Boston Fisher, a health educator with a passion for meeting people where they are. Our guest today is Ms. Constanza Roder. Constanza is the founder and CEO of Hearts Need Art, creative support for patients and caregivers, and the host of the podcast, Arts for the Heart of It. Constanza is a singer, adolescent leukemia survivor, and speaker. Today, Constanza came by the cafe to talk to us about her experience with childhood leukemia and why she founded Hearts Need Art. Let's get to the episode. Hi, Constanza. Welcome to the Good Health Cafe. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Could you please introduce yourself to the audience? I'm Constanza Roder. I'm the founder and CEO of Hearts Need Art, creative support for patients and caregivers. And I started this organization largely out of based out of my own experience with adolescent leukemia. And we've been around, we've been doing this for five years, and I've been playing at the bedside for cancer patients for over 10 years. So Wow. I like that. Playing at the bedside of cancer patients. What do you mean by that? Well, I go into hospitals and I'm a musician. I'm a singer and I play some piano and I take my keyboard with me and I knock on a patient's door and introduce myself and ask, see if they want to hear some live music. And if they do, then great, then I'll play for them. And I try to get as close as I can to their personal music preference and their requests. So I have to bring a wide, a wide variety of music with me, which I love because I love all music that is good. (laughs) Like all genres of music have, have things that I, I really enjoy. So it's fun to get to learn and, and play and share them all. That sounds lovely. Could you please tell us about your experience with adolescent leukemia? How did you get diagnosed? What was that like? So when I was 13 years old, I started getting sick all of a sudden, and that was fairly out of the norm for me and started going through testing and all the normal stuff. And they found out that I had leukemia, which I was fortunate that they caught it about as early as they could have caught it. and. I had a very treatable form of leukemia, but I still had 130 weeks of chemotherapy. So most of my high school career was spent on chemo. And my first day of of my freshman year of high school, well, a little bit of backstory. I was homeschooled mostly through eighth grade and was diagnosed at the end of my eighth grade year. And I was planning on going to the public high school in my area. And so the first time I ever walked on campus at a school, I was bald. I had braces and I'm pretty sure I was wearing unfortunate looking overalls. (laughs) I'm grateful for the the couple of 
friends that I met that day that I think took pity on the old girl and, you know, made friends together. So anyway, so that was a kind of a unique high school experience. It's a fairly complex time of life to have, have cancer. They've actually found that the adolescent and young adults demographic is the most at-risk demographic in cancer right now. They're underrepresented in studies. They have a higher level of psychosocial needs. They Their prognoses haven't improved in the last several decades as much as other demographics. So in some cancers, they're dying almost at the same rate as they were 30 years ago, which that's just not really the case in most other demographics. There's there anyway, so it's a complex time of life to have cancer. And I, you know, got to experience all of those complexities. <laughs> and it, it also kind of gave me a different perspective from my from my peers because I was facing my mortality. Like those were the issues I was facing. And my my peers were, you know, the worst thing that happened to them that day is they broke the, their fingernail in chem class and that's destroyed their life. So it, it was hard sometimes to relate. And anyway, I ended up graduating early and going on to college. But but one of the things that was really my saving grace was the arts. I grew up in a very musical family and music was a really powerful way that we would encourage each other. And when I was in treatment during the hardest days, we would sing songs of encouragement about God's faithfulness and providence, a lot of spiritual songs. And then when we had big successes, we would have dance parties. Like it was the the whole gamut. And I also had an opportunity when I was in high school to work with an organization that had groups to support teens and young adults with cancer. And we would get together and do all all different types of visual arts. And that was kind of the first time that I applied visual arts in this way, expressing my story and really honestly expressing some of the ugly emotions that I was feeling that I didn't always feel safe sharing with my parents or my friends because, or even admitting to myself because, oh, like heaven forbid, I was actually angry or upset with what was happening to me. (laughs) No, we got to be positive and, you know, be inspiring and, you know, BS that sometimes gets put on you as a, as a cancer survivor, but a blank canvas didn't come with any of those, any of that baggage. I could just, well, I could just express and just vomit on, on a metaphorically on a canvas. And that was immensely healing and cathartic. And it got those emotions out of my body so that I wasn't having to fight cancer and the burden of emotions that I was dealing with. I love the way you put that. You didn't have to fight cancer and the burden of emotions. So arts for you was a way of, of healing. And well, you're a singer and that's an art form, but the, the drawing, the painting, was that something that you always did as well? Or did you learn that through that process? That's a good question. So my great aunt is an artist and early when I was a young kid, I, she taught me how to do watercolors and I really loved that. And I had like, even had like a little sketchbook that I would use sometimes, but that wasn't my main art form. You know, I, I was, I did music and I was, I performed and did all kinds of stuff. And so after during my cancer experience and after when I was kind of reintroduced to visual arts, it was also introduced in a different way where with my great aunt, we would study kind of the theory and, and technique around art making, which are really valuable skills to be able to translate 
images in your head to paper. Like that's a really powerful skill to have. Whereas the work I was doing with this group was much more expressive and it wasn't outcome-based. It was, it was process-based and it, the, the process itself was its own end. So it didn't matter so much what like the quality of the end product. And so that was a really freeing experience as well. There wasn't, I didn't have to bring judgment to it. Sometimes, you know, music is my main art form, like I said, and I've studied music in school. And so sometimes it's hard to turn off that like judgy part of my brain of like, oh, that wasn't quite right. Or like, oh, I need to, I want to do that differently or whatever. And so Sometimes it can be, if I'm stuck in my head, it can be hard to really find expressive release in my main art form. Whereas sometimes when I go to dance or to visual arts, I can. And so I like having all of the things and enjoying all the things. As you look back on your experience of of being a childhood leukemia patient, is there anything you knew or learned by the end of it that you wish you knew at the beginning? Ooh, oh my gosh. I feel like I could write a book about that. (laughs) Let's see some highlights. Well, one just kind of on a practical level that is relevant to other, other children and teens and young adults that are facing cancer, a cancer diagnosis is I wish I knew the risk to my fertility early on. You know, we were all informed about the risk to my heart and my brain and my bones and all of the things, but not once did, were we told that there was a risk to my fertility and with leukemia, unfortunately with girls, there, there isn't enough time to do fertility preservation generally because it's the leukemia is pretty fast moving, but with other cancers there, there often is time. And there's this movement in AYA circles, adolescent, young adult cancers to make sure people there that providers are educating teens, young adults, and even children with cancer of the risk to their fertility. And if, you know, if they've gone through puberty to try to do fertility preservation, so that's like, just on a very practical level, like would have been nice to know, maybe, maybe would have been able to do things differently, but maybe not. But other things I've learned, I learned that love it runs deeper than even the deepest sorrow I've experienced and witnessed. And I just experienced a lot of suffering and loss in my life. And through that whole experience, you know, I found that the love and the relationships that we have and the faith that we have, you know, our relationship with ourselves, our creator, our friends and family, that that is an anchor that can sustain even the most violent shaking. And that I think is something that you can maybe understand cerebrally, but only until you go through some violent shaking to you really at a core level, discover what, what is really unshakable. And I think that's something that I've carried with me through the rest of my life. I'm really grateful that I learned that at such a young age. So now as I'm older, like, I don't care about petty, stupid stuff that really doesn't matter in the end. You know, I mean, sometimes I do like, I'm not, not like so enlightened, I'm just, but, but having that court, that touchstone to go back to of like, you know what, this really doesn't matter what what matters is making sure you tell your loved ones you use every opportunity to tell your loved ones how you feel about them i hate our whole practice around death like how we wait till people are dead to eulogize them it's like why don't we eulogize people when they're living so they really know how they've affected us and so that's something i've definitely taken with me and so many others you know there's so many lessons but i guess if i was going to give any advice to my younger self i'd say just hold on girlfriend <laughs> Find those anchors in your life and hold on. 
I like that a lot. And when I think of what you might say to someone supporting a young person, mm. I'd be curious to know what you'd say. And I suspect one of those things is going to be, don't say everything's going to be all right. <laughs> yes, that's so good. I'm so glad you said that. You know, there, there's this real culture of toxic positivity in 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 and around cancer and really any any serious illness of you know just be just stay positive just you know look on the bright side at least it's you know this is a good cancer it's not a bad cancer it's like okay well all cancers suck so <laughs> that does not helpful and i think sometimes people who are trying to help and are they're scared to say the wrong thing so sometimes they don't say anything or they don't show up and shame around that of like well i can't show up now because i didn't show up earlier. And so, you know, just show up, just, just show up. It's going to be messy. You're not always going to say the right thing and that's okay. Some practical tips, you know, something to kind of be, to, to have some self-awareness about your own feelings and discomforts around the situation, because a lot of times harmful things are said in an attempt, you know, the, the deliverer of that message, their intent is to make the, their loved one feel better with what they're saying, but really what's un, underlying it is they're, they're using maybe cliches or platitudes to discharge their own discomfort. They're trying to minimize the other person's discomfort so that they can minimize how bad they're hurting. And that is not helpful for the person you're trying to help. If they're pouring your heart, their heart out to you and you're like, well, you know, at least you're still alive or let you know, whatever, just dumb stuff or like, God will never give you more than you can handle or, you know, just pray harder. I mean, there's, there seems to be a lot of like toxic platitudes that come out of religious communities. Unfortunately, there's good stuff that comes up, but there's also some toxic, toxic stuff. So I would say, listen and reflect back what you're hearing, even if it's painful and don't try to change how the person is feeling because there's nothing you can say that will change their circumstance or change how they're feeling, but being present with them and making them feel seen and really heard and loved will. So don't try to fix them, just be present. And just that gift of presence is really powerful. They say one of the greatest protectants we have against long-term side effects, consequences, that's a better word of trauma is when someone is going through trauma to feel seen and heard and loved. And that, that minimizes those effects of trauma. It's really when we go through trauma alone, that the risks of those long-term consequences go up. And sometimes even in my experience with, with leukemia, some of the trauma that I did experience that had long lasting effects, I dealt with PTSD and all kinds of stuff after treatment it was really based around those times when I did feel alone in what I was experiencing. And sometimes there's nothing anyone else could have, could have done differently in those situations. And sometimes it was my, from coming from myself of feeling unsafe to share what I was feeling. So just letting your loved one know that you're a safe place, that you're a safe container for whatever it is. And, you know, sometimes that could look like just doing something completely unrelated to cancer and just doing something fun with them and enjoying, but then also when there is real hurt to, to sit with them and be there. That's great advice. Thank you. 
Have you had to advocate for yourself, Constanza, as a patient? <laughs> and what tips did you would you share on that? <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, so about I think it was three or four four months into my treatment, there was a nurse's strike at the hospital that I was, I was being treated. And so they had to fly in nurses from around the country, some of whom hadn't really worked in oncology before, or if they did, they worked in adult oncology, not pediatrics. And my between me and my mom, we definitely had to speak up several times in order for them not to, to cause permanent damage to me. And, you know, I think for my mom, that scarred her for life of like, She's always like to this day, hypervigilant around anything medicine related, which totally get it. But I, you know, even after treatment, when I was experiencing some pretty life-altering long-term, what what we thought were long-term side effects of my treatment, I really had to speak up about that. And then when they did some testing and didn't find anything, I had to like push further, like, no, we really need to figure this out. So did more testing, like finally got to the end of the line. They were like, well, this is just your new normal. And I was like, well, I can't accept that (laughs) as an answer. So I'm going to go find someone else who maybe knows more about what to do. And, you know, really had a search. I found a a doctor who was trained in Western medicine and in Eastern medicine and as a naturopath and did all the stuff to heal my gut and change my diet and all of this stuff. And I was like a different person in a month. It was crazy how fast it helped. But if I hadn't pushed and advocated for myself and kept looking, I don't know where I would be. And then there's been many times, I remember even recently, I had to do it every five years. I'm supposed to get a a full cardiac workup because I had some of the chemos I had are toxic to the the heart muscle. And so for the rest of my life, I have to get my heart checked. But my, when I go and get my heart checked, I'm the youngest person in the room by far. It's all elderly people there, which is fine. I don't care. Like I love, I love elderly people. So, but when the charges went through my insurance, they denied them. They were going to deny them as, as unnecessary. And we had a fight and we had to get my doctors involved and an oncologist involved and all these people involved to really push the back on the insurance company and say, no, 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 this is necessary. This is standard protocol for long-term survivorship. So there was a lot, obviously, during treatment that I had to advocate, but I feel like even more afterward to advocate for for myself and for my health. Thanks for sharing that. Because I know sometimes people feel like, oh, I don't want to be a bother. I don't want to get in anyone's okay. way. Okay, <laughs> send them my way. And here's the thing, you're going to encounter, you know, our healthcare providers are human and they generally go into healthcare with, the best of intentions and they want to, they want to serve. And then they get in the system and they get bogged down by the system and they don't have as much time as they would like with patients. And they're just trying to push through and they're going based off of like, you know, just what they are, what they see the most in their practice and all of that. But when there's some, when there's an outlier happening and you're experiencing that outlier, you have to kind of shake it a little bit to get on, on the radar of your healthcare providers. And that even if your healthcare providers may seem annoyed by that, that's okay. Like that's their job to take care of your health. And I feel as a young person, as a woman, I've had to advocate I've had to really learn how to, how to dig in and stand up for myself and, and speak directly and clearly. And I feel like I've gotten good responses from that. So 
be clear, communicate what's going on as many times as you need to, to as many people as you need to, until you find someone that will, that will listen. That's awesome. Thank you, Constanza. When you were on chemo, were you going to school? I was, I did. So I did a combination of in-person classes and a home study. I didn't really have the energy to, to be on campus all day. And it all always super good for my health because I would go through periods of um, neutropenia, which is when your, your essentially my immune system was really suppressed. So all the isolation that people have experienced this last, you know, year or so with COVID, like this is what cancers, cancer patients experience most of the time. So yeah, it was a, com- it was a combination. So I did a lot of home study. I, I, I meant to go to full-time high school on campus. And then I was still homeschooled for a big chunk of it. Oh, well I tried. <laughs> yes, you did. You probably had a good senior year. I, was, yeah. I skipped my senior year. I graduated early, just went oh, to college. Now, like, Peace hearts, out. I'm done. Now hearts needs arts. How did you get that started? And what was your motivation? So, yeah. So like I said, I started singing at the bedside of patients about 10 years ago. And I mean, the response is, it's hard to describe. You kind of have to see it when you walk into someone's space, when they're going through some of the hardest times of their life and you look into their eyes and you say, what would feel good for you to hear today? What music would you like to hear today? And then you give them a private concert for one from a you know, a professional musician that is giving the most excellent version of their art form as they can just to be there in that moment to support a patient or a caregiver. And it's really powerful. There's a lot of tears in the work that I do and a lot of really beautiful shifts that can happen when you attend to the spirit and the person and those those emotional parts of ourselves. I the thing I heard most from people I worked with though was we need more of this. Thank you for being here, but hello, we're here all the time and you just coming once a week is not enough. <laughs> so sorry. And they wanted something they could do every day. They wanted visual arts and and writing and just all kinds of different things that I I didn't know how to do and I was just one person. So I googled how to start a nonprofit and started a nonprofit so that I, we could identify other creatives in the community and train them to how to safely engage patients and caregivers in healthcare settings in the arts. And that's what we've done for the last it's almost five years. And we've worked with thousands and thousands of patients and caregivers and our patients report lower pain levels, lower levels of anxiety and isolation and depression. They report that their mood is improved. Our healthcare providers love us being there because it lessens the burden on them. Because when it's just the patient and their nurse, that nurse has to be their entertainer and be help. You know, if they're bored, they're the only person they have to talk to in a lot of situations. So having this outlet for patients, it actually helps lessen the burden on the healthcare providers. Then we also, of course, target healthcare providers as well. And it's been a really interesting journey, especially this last couple of years with COVID. (laughs) And we've primarily served in person here in San Antonio, Texas, and a few hospitals here. But during COVID, we went virtual. And so all of a sudden people from anywhere in the country could access our services because you can actually go to our website right now. If anyone's listening, if you're a survivor or a 
a patient or a caregiver or healthcare provider, you can go to our website and click on virtual arts. And there's all kinds of things that you can access there. You make an appointment directly with one of our artists or musicians to have a private session over Zoom. Healthcare providers can sign up for our Gratitude Grams program, which we created really to help address some of the concerns of burnout that's happening in healthcare right now. We just want to make sure our healthcare providers feel appreciated. And we do that through, we combine messages of thanks from people in the community with music or a little visual art activity or writing activity. We put them together in a video and we send them to healthcare providers each week. So, you know, healthcare providers can enroll in that. So now there's all these virtual offerings. And then we recently went back in person a few months ago and which we're so excited about. I mean, virtual is great, but like (laughs) there's no comparison to like being in the room. So yeah. So we're doing, you know, all, all of the things right now. That sounds really lovely. Yeah. Do you target only, let's say childhood or young adults, or do you do all ages for cancer patients? Yeah, it's a great question. So our mission is to, to support people with life altering health challenges. And we primarily serve adult patients. The reason for that is most pediatric hospitals have a lot of supportive services that are offered to them from outside organizations that want to do things to support cute little bald kids. Totally get it. They're adorable and they need support, of course. And they often have more access to things like art therapy, music therapy, child life. There's already a lot of activity that generally happens in pediatric hospitals, but then you, as soon as you turn 18 and you're over in the adult side, it's it's not good. (laughs) If you haven't been on an adult oncology unit without an arts program recently, it's not good. (laughs) And the arts just bring this element of life and it helps to attend to people's personhood. As I mentioned, it just shifts the whole environment of care in a really positive way. So we're, we work to bridge that gap. And so we primarily target adult patients. In addition to oncology right now, we're actually serving stroke and cardiac rehab patients and other groups we're working with virtually from different parts of the country that represent different, different disease populations. So not only cancer now. Do you have any tips on ways that arts can benefit health? Ooh, I love this question. Oh my gosh. So I could nerd out about this. We could do a whole new, a whole other podcast just about all, all my nerdy arts and health research. Anyway, yes. My first recommendation would just be to start small. If you feel like, if you're like, oh, I'm not an artist or oh, I can't sing on pitch or what I can't play this, whatever your excuse is, because most adults have some sort of wounding that happened around their creativity at a young age. And then they just, they stopped. We're born creators. We're born making rhythm and, and music and and art, like it's, it's just innate in us. And it's only when we're, when we're told that we can't, that we don't. And so a lot of our work centers around reintroducing people to the power of their own creativity. And we do that in, we try to do that in uh, accessible ways that don't feel very intimidating. So start with a coloring book, you know, even just coloring has been shown to um, stimulate the relaxation response in your body. And it can be very meditative and reduce anxiety. So start with coloring and, you know, anyone can color. doesn't really matter what, just pick whatever colors you like. It doesn't matter. Making sounds with your voice. We won't call it singing. We'll just say making sounds with your voice. It actually has a ton of health benefits. So we we have our sympathetic nervous system and our parasympathetic nervous system. So our sympathetic nervous system kicks on when we need to, when there's a challenge that we have to meet and we have to activate in order to meet that challenge, that deadline at work, that whatever it is. 
But if that isn't balanced by the calming mechanism, the parasympathetic nervous system, the rest and digest system, and we stay in that state of hyperarousal, it can cause disease. It can cause all kinds of problems in our body. One of the ways that we can actually stimulate the parasympathetic nervous system to kick on is by stimulating the vagus nerve, which runs through a large part of your body. But one of the places it runs through is through your vocal folds. So when your vocal folds vibrate, it actually stimulates your vagus nerve and stimulates a calming response. (laughs) So whether that's humming or singing in your car uh, and singing has its own health benefits. It boosts boosts endorphins in your brain. When you sing, you elongate your exhale compared to the length of your inhale. And that's actually used a lot in meditative practices as a way to to calm your system down. It's physically energizing as well. So there's this calming and energizing balance that happens. Gosh, I could, the list goes on. Like dance has so many health benefits. Visual arts have so many health benefits. And if you're, if you're sitting there listening and you're like, but I can't do this. Okay. There was a study done a while back that put people into two different groups. Some people were making art for 45 minutes. Some people, I can't remember what their control was, but there wasn't control. And the people that did art for 45 minutes had their cortisol levels lowered. There were other indicators that that there was a significant health benefit of those 45 minutes. And what they found is it didn't matter what type of training or background or previous experience those participants had in the arts. The raw beginners got as much of a health benefit as the professionals. So don't use the excuse of, I can't do this. Like no one has to see your artwork, just enjoy And I think it's an invitation to play. I don't think we play enough. And that's so important. We need tools to express our greatest joys and sorrows. And that is the role of the arts. That is why we have the arts. That is the role the arts play in cultures across history and across cultures. We we lean on the arts when at our greatest points of elation. I mean, think about when you fall in love, like, just when you're in your normal every day, you're maybe not thinking of writing poetry in your head, but if all of a sudden you fall in love and you're like, oh my gosh, I don't have all the, I don't have the words to, to express this, this huge emotion. And that's why we have music and that's why we have poetry and dance and all those things. And then same thing on the, on the side of sadness. So build the skills so that you have them when you need them. That would be my other piece of advice. So take an art class, build some skills. No one comes out of the womb knowing how to draw or like, I mean, we innately go to it, but the skills around shading and color theory, those are things that can be learned and anyone can learn them. Anyone can learn how to sing. There's a very, very, very tiny percentage of the population that is truly tone deaf. And if you're sitting here thinking, I'm a, I'm one of those, you probably are not. People that are tone deaf have very monotone voices. They have zero inflection in their voice and they just kind of sound like robots you probably haven't encountered anyone like that and you probably aren't that. So if you, if your voice goes up or down, when you speak, it can go up and down in pitch for singing. And just, so just find a good voice teacher, find a community choir, find a place to plug in and find community and build community around the arts. And it'll be there to support you when you need it. That's lovely. I feel like what I'm hearing you say is no need to strive for perfection. You don't have to be Pavarotti or Picasso have fun with it, <laughs> get your pad and sing, even if no one else likes what you sound exactly. like. like, you can do it for yourself. <laughs> yep. Yeah. 
I yeah. Like and if we people just... want to hear, learn more about that, about the health benefits of the arts and ways that they can engage in it, they can check out um, our podcast, Arts for the Health of It. We talk mm-hmm. to researchers and artists and other practitioners in this field of arts and health. And we try to include in most episodes, some sort of practical thing that people can try no matter what their, their background or skill set is. So you can get more tips from our podcast, Arts for the Health of It, and you can find more about that at our website art.org. Click on the podcast link. Any closing thoughts, Constanza? My closing thought is be brave. The arts by their very nature are revelatory. We're taking an internal thought, a reality about ourselves and making it external. And that can be a really scary process. So first be brave with yourself, be brave to express yourself fully and truly with yourself. And then as you gain comfortability there, you can start expressing yourself more fully and completely with other people. And I would just, I dare you, I would want, I dare you to try it. And I dare you to watch how your mood shifts, how your, your joy shifts, how your life shifts. So be brave. You can lean in and, and do it. I would invite you into the space to explore your creativity and just play. There's no, there's no agenda except just play. Lovely. Well, thank you so much for coming to the Good Health Cafe. Thank you for having me. It was a delight to talk with you. I hope you enjoyed the episode and that you will take Constanza's call to action to try an art form of any kind. Remember, you don't have to be a singer or a professional artist to have fun and healing from the arts. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend so that they can learn more about ways to improve their health. Until next time, see you in the cafe later. Bye.